0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Zoning has shaped American cities since 1916 when New York City adopted the first comprehensive ordinance. What are the economic effects of zoning, both good and bad? William Fischel is author of Zoning Rules, The Economics of Land Use Regulation. We spoke following a forum for the book in October. What are most homeowners really concerned about when it comes to what goes on around them?
1: The thing that drives most homeowners is anxiety that something will change in the neighborhood that will adversely affect the value of their house or the projected value of their house. Now, I hasten to add that most homeowners, especially at public meetings, don't want to talk about money they want to talk about things that map into money, like the quality of the schools, the amount of traffic, whether that's crime, air pollution, all those things. But we economists know, and indeed I think most homeowners know, that those things pretty clearly map into a dollar value. So that's why I think uh, reducing it to the value uh, is, a, is a useful shorthand.
0: Now, you talk in the book, speaking of that, you talk about uh, the Coase theorem and its uh, potential application. As what, a replacement for zoning or as a sort of a supplement to zoning?
1: I, I think of it as a rationalization of zoning. So if you have a, a, a town that has a very large minimum lot sizes uh, that are unreasonably so and you can't develop anything, uh, the, the Kosian approach, which says, well, if you have an inefficient outcome and there's two parties who can bargain with one another, they should be able to make a deal. Uh, the landowner or the developer landowner should be able to th- ask the town, "What do you need to rezone this so I can get attractive houses or a commercial center going?" And uh, smart landowners, uh, in fact, uh, developers uh, do start that way these days.
0: They do. Yes, it's a it's not a uh, not a, not a hypothetical proposition. Okay. Well, how does that how does that go typically? Because I mean, the, the Coase theorem predicts these things, but. People rarely bring up uh, too many examples of that occurring in practice. Well, the the
1: example, it it, it is rare because it is not easy to do. You have to have a a good deal of experience and foresight to uh, be able to do this. The example that I use in the book is a uh, developer who... uh, um, Bought land thirty seven acres in uh, West Lebanon, New Hampshire. The developer's name is David Clem. I hope he doesn't mind my using him as an example. Um, and and David was a very experienced developer, and he wanted to develop an office park for a high tech uh, mixed use. Uh, office park where there would be firms, uh, kind of like the ones in uh, in downtown Boston and uh, Cambridge, which he had, he had developed, and uh, uh, some commercial development and some residential development. So he went around. It's it's a 37 acre tract, but it's bordered on two sides by some uh, uh, existing houses. And David went after he bought the land, went around and knocked on doors. Himself, Not with his lawyer in hand, not with his planners in hand, not with a retinue of, of, of people who answered to him, but just barely by himself and said, I want to do something with land. What would you like in return? What, what kind of things can I do for you? Uh, because I need your help. To get this through, it turned out what they really wanted was the land bordered on the Connecticut River. The people in the neighborhood wanted access to the Connecticut River. It's a beautiful site, but it was over private land, undeveloped. They really couldn't uh, go down and and uh, uh, boat, boat or picnic by the river. And so he said, "I'll give it to you." Uh, in fact, I'll give it to you uh, uh, in perpetuity. I'll, I'll uh, dedicate the land to a, a conservation easement, uh, I'll even have you participate." And he got them all on their side. And his zoning just sailed through.
0: All right. I mean, that's, that sounds like a, a happy example. You described uh, the coast theorem as a rationalization for zoning, but wouldn't some certain kinds of zoning actually prohibit that kind of transaction from taking place?
1: Well, many aspects of zoning laws do stand in the way. A lot of zoning proposes that zoning be based on a comprehensive plan. Now, I think comprehensive plan, all that really means is you're, you're zoning the whole community for something or other, but planners think that they should be able to foresee what these developments are uh, and that uh, folks like David Clem should go on the land that they zoned industrial or mixed use or commercial and not uh, just pick a pretty piece of land on the Connecticut River. So, what, part of the problem is that planning uh, theory says, gee, the planners ought to be, have this far-seeing view of what's uh, what's good for the community. And uh, sometimes they do. I, I, I give credit to a planners, a lot of credit. Um, but a lot of times things change, uh, technologies change, and uh, the preferences of the community are not well known, and so you need to have some kind of change. And so, so planning and zoning sometimes stand in the way of change um, in ways that, uh, that you have to work around.
0: Jane Jacobs is a is a popular figure among libertarians when it comes to uh, land development. And as, as she wrote in The Death and Life of American Cities, this is or, an organic process. Uh, what do you take or disagree with from her work when it comes to uh, zoning and how that can impact development and rejuvenation of cities?
1: Yeah. Well, Jane Jacobs is one of my goddesses. Uh, I think extremely highly of her. Uh, uh, here is this... A woman who who just took life as it came and made sense of it in ways that people who were, who were just uh, uh, developing theories out of air uh, could not make sense of. So, I, I, I give maximum credit. The difficulty with Jacobs, I think, is that um, uh, her vision of the mixed-use community—and really, she kind of invented it. Planners now buy into this. It's not just uh, libertarians— um, her vision was, was was a fairly low-rise community, <laughs> uh, not an intensive land use community, and so so, I think her work kind of biased against uh, larger cities uh, redevelopment, which, in some some instances, looks like it's destroying communities, but is really just creating other communities. A little harder to do. So in, so her, v-
0: so in her view, car beats elevator, and that's and you you say that that doesn't understand how cities currently develop?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think she liked walking cities. It wasn't the feet beat elevator. But sometimes, yeah, the elevator's got to win. It gets tiresome after a a few floors.
0: (laughs) Matt Iglesias brought up uh, something that I think gets short shrift uh, for the broad public, but is certainly of interest to economists, and that is zoning as an impediment to the location decisions of of firms and of people who might uh, be working at those firms. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I'm glad he brought that up. When I f- wrote the original book back in 1985, uh, Economics of Zoning Laws, I viewed zoning as a metropolitan issue. That is, the suburbs were keeping the low-income people inside and they were causing sprawl outside, but I didn't think of it as beyond a particular, you know, let Pittsburgh be Pittsburgh, let Portland be Portland was my story. Um, uh, and, and since then, uh, particularly the work that uh, Eddie Glazer's has done at Harvard and, and two uh, uh, people who have worked closely with them, um, uh, Peter Ganong and, and uh, Danny Shog, uh, have, have pointed out that this actually has national implications. Uh, that it isn't just uh, Silicon Valley or funny places in Sunnyvale or or, uh, uh, or Arlington, Mass, that are that are doing crazy things. The collective effect of this is actually ha- affects national migration, and affecting national migration from people from for poor people, for middle income people, for any people who want to move from low productivity areas, from peoples where, where they have a, not much of a job, uh, to places where there are opportunities, where businesses are uh, expanding, where the knowledge industry is really taking off, uh, that's extremely important in American history. I mean, I, I think one way I take it of it is that we don't have great national education K-12 education, we make up for it by allowing people to move the the square pegs to move to the square holes uh, pretty easily, and 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 then you know learn by doing uh, or, or learn by college education. Um, so so retarding that process is really quite bad for the American economy. I think in some sense. Uh, uh this is what a lot of the urban economists have been uh, have, have been pointing out to and I'm glad Matt, Matt brought that up
0: uh the case of Buchanan uh in Louisville Kentucky yeah Buchanan's yearly this was uh you know I I'm from Louisville and that's a, that's sort of a, an unpleasant chapter in Louisville's history these were racial uh restrictions on buying and selling homes but there are many legitimate reasons why people would want to make restrictions on uh, communities?
1: Yeah. Uh, Buchanan v. Worley was a pre-zoning case. They, they looked at this new institution of zoning in—Louisville in, in Louisville wasn't the pioneer in this. Baltimore was. Uh, and they said, well, we've got all these black people moving up from the South. They want jobs. Uh, it's part of the Great Migration. Um, but uh, we don't want them living in our neighborhoods. And so their way of proposing to do— to restrict this was to declare neighborhoods either white or black, predominantly white or predominantly black. And if you were predominantly one or the other, basically you had to become, you had to sell property. You didn't actually have to sell, but when you sold your property, you could only sell to black people if you were in a black neighborhood or white people if you are in a white neighborhood. So this was an early abuse of zoning. To the great credit of the US Supreme Court, they struck it down tooth, you know, root and branch unanimously, uh, and to the credit of the court system in general, uh, even the Southern courts stepped in line and said that we're not going to do that. Baltimore and Louisville had actually looked ab- abroad to see what kind of system they could they could do this, and their model was South Africa. This is—I I call this Supreme Court decisions how apartheid did not come to America. Now, we certainly have racial segregation, but it is a much softer kind, uh, the subtle kinds of, uh, you know, well, that just got sold, or, or wouldn't you want to see over in this neighborhood? But we do not have that rigid legal uh, segregation that South Africa had for so many years, and I think it spared us an enormous— uh, 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 improve the improve the life of uh, of blacks enormously. the 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 other the, the case that I th- the, that I think needs to be t- addressed here or the other set of decisions that need to be addressed is this regulatory takings doctrine. One of the proposals that I have embraced in the past was here's how we can fight this uh, overly restrictive zoning, this unreasonable zoning. We can t- say to communities, The courts should say to communities, well, that's all very good that you want to downzone this land, add add restrictions to it, to uh, 10-acre minimum lot size. But if you want to do that, community X, uh, you have to pay the landowners for the loss in value. Now, I think some communities might actually do that. They'd like their open space, and I don't have any problem with that. But many communities would say, well, maybe we have other things to do with $50 million, that we'd have to pay the landowners for that. And so maybe we should adopt a more reasonable zoning standard and let some more development happen and so forth. So that's the uh, regulatory takings approach, where the court takes the lead and says, uh, don't don't treat your landowners unfairly like this, because basically the landowners who are being downzoned here are being held to a standard of providing open space that previous developers and landowners weren't. Uh, uh, and so, so, there's a matter of fairness and, and, I think, efficiency. The difficulty with that is there's no bottom to that bottom. That is, once you decide that you can have large-scale compensation for regulatory takings, everybody has his hand out. It is just a, a nonstop story. Some people think that's OK. Uh, my friend Richard Epstein thinks mostly that's OK. Uh, Richard has not made any much progress on this. Uh, even judges of my acquaintance say, "We can't do that. That makes us into the National Zoning Board of Adjustment. We got other things we got to do uh, with our time." And so, uh, it's it's really a standard which is uh, I call a wonderful blackboard standard. You're sitting standing there lecturing a class on a blackboard, and you say, "Well, they do benefits here and costs there, and they come to an equilibrium." Um, uh,
0: Courts just find this entirely unmanageable. If I understand you correctly, then torts probably not a very good replacement for much of zoning? No, I don't think
1: so. Uh, Zoning pretty much replaced the tort of nuisance. I mean, it's still out there, but nobody invokes
0: it. The mortgage interest deduction is a popular piece of, uh, as many libertarians like to say, uh, uh, welfare for the middle class. And uh, then a lot of Utilities run lines way out into communities at subsidized rates,
1: and mostly because they're they're required to do that by the state government, they're <laughs> required to
0: do it. So, um, how do those impact? Housing decisions among Americans.
1: Well, my view is that they probably, in my, and I think I agree with most economists in this, that this somewhat distorts the allocation of of capital. Uh, we have too much capital in in housing because housing is this this seemingly free lunch for for, for homeowners, uh, and and not enough in other industrial capital. That, that's that's the. Uh, that, that's the overall view of this, of, of the mortgage deduction. I, I deal with this in the book in a gingerly way. I first point out that in the ideal world, you would allow the mortgage deduction and deduction for maintenance and 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 property taxes and depreciation for homeowners, same as same as commercial developers get right, properly, but commercial developers pay tax on their total income. If you made homeowners co- Pay tax on the income they pay themselves uh, for uh, living in their houses. All would be right with the world as far as uh, 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 as uh, allocation of capital is concerned. My secondary view about this, and and I think I'm, I'm one of the few who's, who's uh, uh, noticed this, is that this over allocation towards home ownership causes people to be too anxious about anything that affects its value. Now, you ought to be somewhat anxious about you know a, a, the glue factory moving in next door, even though the glue factory developer says, oh, I'm, I'm really the best on the planet, I'll, it won't smell at all. You should be somewhat skeptical of that. But when somebody wants to build a, an apartment house uh, 10 blocks away, and you say, no, no, there might be more crime or something like that, um, it, 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 I think that a lot of that comes back to the fact that people just have too much of their assets in housing. And we either need to reduce the size of that value Uh, or or really and uh, provide some mechanisms for compensation for people who feel that uh, – who actually have lost uh, uh, value in their housing. There there are occasional uh, insurance schemes like this. Both of these are a little bit pie in the sky, I have to admit.
0: Now, we should be clear. uh, The mortgage interest deduction is a subsidy to people who owe money on their houses, not necessarily people who might pay cash – uh, for a home.
1: Yeah, I, I'd point out, though, that, uh, and I'll, I'll point out personally, I no longer have a mortgage on my house. Uh, my, my, my wife insisted we pay it off, you know, just in case she, you know, has, has to live there by herself. Um, I'm really healthy, though. Um, but I no longer have a mortgage. I nonetheless still receive an enormous subsidy, because if I had to rent my house to myself, if my neighbor and I change changed places and we each rented houses, my house would rent for, let's say, $40,000 a year or something like that, I would have to pay income tax on that rental value. I don't because it's I'm basically moving the money from one pocket to the other, not past the tax man. So, I am getting an enormous subsidy. Even just, I mean, I would be getting still an additional subsidy if I had a mortgage. Um, but but really, a lot of the subsidy comes from the uh, uh, fact that the transaction that I don't actually make a transaction that the IRS can grab. Now, lots of people think that's fine. And, you know, we we should do more of that. But it's a little bit like using barter to to avoid paying taxes. Uh, the IRS does insist that if you barter uh, uh, your car for medical services or something like that, that both sides of that transaction should, should in principle be taxed. And, and I think they actually do for the more. Elaborate Schemes. I'm just thinking that maybe you should include this barter with yourself scheme in in taxable income. In which case, you should have mortgage deduction. It's fine. You should have property tax and
0: depreciation deduction because you're essentially in business uh, providing services for yourself. We spoke about mobility earlier. Right. Does do housing subsidies prevent or at least sort of make it harder for people to engage in the kind of mobility for? Uh, economic opportunities.
1: I, I think they do, but they didn't used to. And this is the this is the puzzle that I really wanted to address in the book. In the, we've had zoning for a hundred years. Zoning did nothing to bad to American mobility for its first sixty years. Uh, it uh, communities were zoned. There was lots of home ownership. It blossomed after World War II. People moved along like crazy. Uh, it wasn't really a problem. It really only became a problem in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when people became hyper-aware of the effect of land use regulation on the value of their own homes and stepped up to the plate and said, no, I've got to participate in the hearings. No, I need to preserve that wetland. Uh, This this hyper-awareness that has made mobility, that made housing values go up in desirable areas of the country so much. And... uh, Productive areas of the country so much that's retarding the mobility of people in ways that it didn't used to. We don't. It's not inevitable that that. Uh, in other words, I want to say it's not homeownership itself. We just have too much homeownership, as the usual economist says. There's can be too much of a good thing.
0: One of the arguments that uh, Randall O'Toole here at the Cato Institute makes, and perhaps a few other economists, is that uh, the housing crisis was in part driven. Uh, by housing markets that were highly restricted.
1: Uh, My mentor at Princeton, Ed Mills, subscribes to that 100%. I have to say I don't know enough to be able to assent to that, but the argument is out there. The only reason we had this enormous housing bubble which burst in such catastrophic ways was because the supply was so uh, unreasonably restricted. I, I agree that the supply was unreasonably restricted, but I, I, I want to beg off from the chain of events that would require that this, you know, cause the Great Recession.
0: William Fischel is author of Zoning Rules, The Economics of Land Use Regulation. Watch or listen to a forum for the book at Cato.org.